Hey, this is David Harmon from Z-Town and you're listening to the Defrag Podcast. Podcast, the show with James, to cater for every geek everywhere. My name is Daniel Kipping. It is the 14th of August, and this is episode 5. We'll be talking new video game releases, in particular No Man's Sky, which I'm really pumped to chat about. Uh, we'll be discussing the highs and lows that was Pokemon Go's explosive launch, and we'll be dropping our thoughts on some of the news to come out of San Diego Comic-Con. So as per usual, our friend and co-editor over at loadscreen.com.au is here with us, Tom Heath. How are you, Tom? Oh, yeah, going all right. Uh, how about yourself, Daniel? Yeah, not so bad, thank you. Now, co-founder of Canberra's Impact Comics, Mel Briggs, has joined us this evening. How are you, Mel? Oh, I'm very well. Look, our guest panel member for this episode is David Harmon. Hello. Uh, Thanks for having me on. No, you're most welcome. Look, among other things, David, although he doesn't particularly like the title, is the CEO of Z-Town, uh, Australia's largest real-world zombie survival game. David's going to be chatting with us about Z-Town's story and how it grew to become what it is today. David, you've, you've sort of had a, a bit of a... Uh, mentioned there. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, no, thank you very much. Yeah, it's um, it's not that I dislike the title. It's just that I feel like the, <laughs> the CEO of a zombie survival simulator is a bit like you know important businessman at the nonsense factory. Of course, so. of course. Yeah, no, I love it. That's great. Uh, fantastic. Well, well, let's dig in and we'll get started by exploring the vast universe that is No Man's Sky. <laughs> Well, developed and published by Hello Games, No Man's Sky is an action-adventure survival video game that was released worldwide earlier this month. No Man's Sky gives players the opportunity to traverse a procedurally generated universe, which is filled with seemingly endless amount of planets, many with their own unique life forms. Tom, you've spent some time playing it. How does it sort of stack up to all the hype that's been building towards its release? Well, yeah, I, I suppose it, with No Man's Sky's hype, it really depends. I, I've, I've only sort of had a little bit of time with it, like not heaps and heaps, but it depends what your expectations of it were. So it kind of lived up to its hype and it kind of didn't, I think, depending on who you ask. Personally, I was very hyped for the the procedural uh, generation technology, like you mm. just said. So... And I think in that regard, as a technological advancement, it's astonishing. The The scale of the universe is huge. I mean, I've only visited a couple of star systems, but um, the planets are actually realistically spaced out. Every planet's sort of been a bit... Uh, they've been different and unique, and depending on how close they are to stars, kind of uh, affected their, their planet, the, the ecosystems. And all that sort of stuff. So as a, like a procedural generation marvel, it's 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 astonishing. However, I, I so far I haven't found much to do that's sort of a bit that that kind of warrants uh, it being an endless kind of game. I'm not reviewing it for load screen. Um, my fellow editor Charlie is uh, working on that as we speak. So mm. I'm very interested, sort of, to see what his final thoughts on it are. But just sort of my two cents has been it's a little overwhelming. In a way, like you're kind of exploring for exploring's sake. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of animals to see. Uh, you know, the the I've seen some planets with really weird kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, geology. So I've seen barren planets, but then I've seen another one where it seems every single plant looks kind of like a squid. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, it's it's one of the weirder planets I've seen. But yeah, while you're on there, you can catalogue animals and plants. Uh, you can name your planets. Uh, there's lots of resources to mine. In terms of creating your technology and working from there, there's so many different elements to work with. And it almost seems like, for me, it seems a bit too much. Mm. I don't know, kind of to think of an example, like you need to, you need a warp cell to power your spaceship to fly to another star system. But to build a warp cell, you need antimatter as well as zinc. But to get antimatter, you need an electron vapor as well as uh, thamium. But to get an electron vapor, uh, you need to buy a uh, suspension fluid from the galactic market yeah. as well as have a whole bunch of carbon. It was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I it, guess, um, yeah. So that's so the game itself though for those who haven't played it and i'm in that that camp too i haven't touched it yet but is there a clear end point or is there a clear goal that you're working towards as the main character in the story sort of there is a goal um i guess i don't know spoiler warning no maybe not um so when you start 
you have the option to either free explore. Um, mm. So, yeah, you can fly to any star that you want um, as long as you've got a warp cell to power your hyperdrive. Sure. Um, but you can also select one of the three paths. As for what the difference between each path is, that mm. isn't really clear to me just yet. But if you decide to follow a path, whenever you go to the galactic map, so you see all the suns, so and each sun representing a galaxy and all that sort of stuff, instead of you picking whichever star you'd like to go to within range, it tells you, go to this next star. So it's like mapped ah. a journey to the center of the universe. What we find at the center of the universe, who knows? But it seems, yeah, you do have the goal of jump from system to system and eventually you get to the middle. Right. So Hello Games, yeah. and I haven't read a lot regarding this, but is this is this a title that they've packaged, put to disc and said, here it is, play it, or will we see or expected to see, or perhaps we don't know yet, a lot of additional downloadable content that they're going to, maybe perhaps they've got some sort of roadmap to say this will be somewhat of a living, breathing title for several years? I think more like the latter, yes. Uh, well, as, as to several years, not entirely sure. Mm. But um, they did release just before the launch day a massive patch uh, to update the game beyond the retail disc version, which added a whole bunch of features like mm. the path system that we just talked about. But they have mentioned that in future they'd like to add the ability to build bases. So maybe you can create a base of operations on a planet. Mm. As for what that would benefit you to from a gameplay standpoint currently, I'm not sure, given it seems to be very much about exploring for the sake of exploring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sort of staying in one place kind of feels to defeat the purpose of this universe. <laughs> yeah, so it seems they are planning to add more and more features. It's just uh, the universe is so huge. Like they say, it'd take five billion actual years mm. for one person to see every planet. So... Ooh, it's kind of it's a game that could go forever i'm interested to see is there any sort of community uh involvement is there a way to network with others uh or is it really more of a localized um mm. game where you just sort of traverse by yourself knowing other people are playing as well but you sort of just play on your own in a way if that makes sense yeah, well, that's where <laughs> Hello Games is being very vague about this. Mm. Um, they're sort of their their public face. Um, Sean Murray, one of the developers, he's sort of very coy about answering questions like that. Um, because uh, many people wondered, yeah, if two players were on the same planet at the same time, yeah, would they see each other? Because uh, yeah, w are we playing on a server per se to see each each other now? That instance has happened. It happened within the first day, yeah, which is astronomically sure. crazy. Two players were on the same planet at the same time, mm. but they saw different day-night cycles. It was a different time of day on the planet, mm. and they didn't see each other when they were standing around. So everyone mm. thought, oh, okay, oh, well, I guess... No, you can't interact with other players in that sort of sense. But when this news hit the internet, Sean Murray came out to say... We've been having server problems yeah. <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, the, you will feel the presence of other players. And we say, but how? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how will we? Will we see them standing there or uh, uh, who knows? So it's a little bit up in the air in that regard. But it seems very much geared to a, a solo exploration experience. Um, I imagine the, the kind of community aspect is that if you arrive on a planet that's already been discovered, it will tell you who discovered it and it's already named and all that sort of stuff. So that's how you kind of feel you've left your mark. Like I've been naming planets and animals with like funny names. Uh, <laughs> and I know maybe one day someone will come across this star system and giggle at that terrible pun I made. <laughs> yeah, nice one. Um, moving on to another title, it sort of has that uh, large community feel and of course had a huge uh, amount of hype building up to it by perhaps a lot more people given this is something that's targeted a larger player base. Pokemon Go has... Um, really been more than put through its paces over the past few weeks. Suffice to say, <laughs> Niantic's development team has been working quite hard to address some, what, what some people perceive as major issues. Um, how's your playing experience been so far? Ah, oh, my playing experience, see, I'll, I'll be honest up front, I was never much of a Pokemon guy. <laughs> That's fine. Um, like, I never watched the show, really, as a kid. It never really, I never got into it. But um, I've had ups and downs. When I started playing it, I, I went for a walk on the first day that it came out. I thought, all right, I'll give this game 
game a go mm. and there were no Pokemon in my neighborhood. <laughs> and I was like, this is boring. Yeah. But um, yeah, so as it uses your geographical location through like Google Maps and that sort of kind of technology to track where you're going, I've found it's really dependent on where you are as to sort of how much fun it is. So walking around my neighborhood to get a coffee it's fairly devoid of Pokemon. There are barely any poker stops, uh, the locations where you can top up Pokeballs and all that. But when I go into Melbourne City, where I live, it's full of poker stops. They're everywhere, and there are Pokemon everywhere, and you're constantly seeing new ones, which give you, you know, if you catch a Pokemon for the first time uh, that isn't one you've already had, uh, you get more experience points. So I just leveled my character super quickly being in the city but if i was just doing my regular day-to-day activities around my local neighborhood that would have taken me forever so kind of how much of a grind it is depends on how willing you are to actually (laughs) pardon the i guess the the nerd joke but go outside and explore of course and and what's interesting about that is i you know you'd you'd wander through towns in the game and there would be no pokemon they weren't there you'd have Mm. to go outside the towns um, you know, you wouldn't walk into Viridian City and you'd just find something random uh, in, in the grass there. There's, there was no grass. You would, walk, you would walk into towns to heal Pokemon, to get items. It doesn't seem like that's the case now. You can, it, it almost seems to me that it's upside down, that you have to visit large urban areas to catch um, what you might consider rarer Pokemon. Um, I, can, I can understand why it's been done that way in the game, uh, given more people are there and, and such. Um, I get more feedback quicker from a lot more people playing at once in concentrated areas. But, yeah, it seems a little backwards to me that um, in, in rural areas like where I live, for example, there aren't there's not a lot around. A lot of very common Pokemon, but that's about it. So, mm. Yeah, and it's been a very interesting experiment in that, as you say, like uh, in your introduction, that Pokemon Go has been kind of more marketed to a more casual audience than maybe something like No Man's Sky, given it's a free-to-play mobile app Mm. however i feel my my biggest criticism of the game is that it isn't geared towards the casual player market or at least the game might have been but thanks to hardcore players it's kind of moot in that you know i i play it a bit i you know maybe between shifts at work or any of that sort of stuff i'm on it i catch a couple of pokemon yay get some xp and that's it but all your pokemon are designed like you know the the end goal after catching pokemon and training them to be stronger is to fight other pokemon in gyms and the gyms are actual locations around your local area as well Hmm. and you compete for them by battling your pokemon against other players pokemon so i've often thought i'd like to battle some of the people that i've caught so the pokemon that i've caught however since i only play it casually and it takes a bit of a grind to upgrade your pokemon per se to have them at any sort of decent strength the people who have since day one i don't know do they not have jobs or school (laughs) or any of that sort of thing who've been exploring everywhere catching all the pokemon and uh grinding them up to make them super super strong every gym i pass has uh pokemon which are What's the, the, the statistic? Uh, CP, their combat power. Sure. Um, they have something like 2,000 CP, mm-hmm. when my strongest is 500. <laughs> yeah, well. And that's taken me a while to get to. It's like the bar of entry to battle for a Pokemon gym for someone, a casual player, is yeah. way too high. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, and I agree with that. And I think that's something that has remained consistent across all of the video games. I um, mean, you, you know, went back to hark back to the, the days where we all had a Game Boy and we'd mm. grab a cable and connect to somebody else's system and play. You know, if you were only a casual player, you'd have no chance of, uh, of battling somebody else's uh, yeah. sort of Pokemon. And I think you sort of... My take on it at this stage is that you can choose to be whatever type of trainer, quote-unquote, that you'd like to be. You can be that casual... Um, a casual individual, much like myself and, and similar to what you described, just sort of between work shifts at work, catching some mm. Pokemon and, and such. And, and that's fine. And I have a lot of fun doing that. Um, although, yeah, I do, I do get a little bummed that I can't... Uh, I look at look in sort of a rage of jealousy at some of these, you know, inc- incredibly powerful Pokemon at some of these gyms in my area. I thought, oh, I'm not even going to bother with this. I <laughs> can't. can't. Mm. I'm just going to end up having to revive all my Pokemon. So, yeah, I understand what you're saying. It can be a little proved to be a little frustrating that you can't join that the sense of community sort of is divided at this sort of a point where it's like well you're not playing x amount of hours a week to you know get these pokemon to this level you're sort of getting left behind that's what it feels like Mm. um it's interesting to see how niantic addressed that uh over the coming months year years 
But, yeah, especially because there are now, what is it, something like 800-odd Pokemon in total now? Oh, yeah, I think <clears> in the... um. In the TV show, uh, mm. yeah, there's like much more. I remember when it was originally 150, but there's a lot more than that now. Um, right. I don't know if they're all in the game. No, I um, think there are. It's not even 150, I think, because the, the original 150 included some some legendaries and stuff, and I don't believe they've been dropped in. But I think it's it's cool that we're going to start seeing that. Well, I assume we'll start seeing those being phased in um, over time. So, yeah, interesting. One of those mm. ones to keep an eye on going forward. But I think for now it's been... A little rocky with with the radar um, or the nearby system, as it's called yeah. in the game. It's been broken and turned off. And, and yeah, there's funny. been a few glitches regarding that. Um, yeah, people have been getting refunds as well on their microtransactions thanks to that, which I've found rather ah. interesting. Yeah, because many people have, or well, they've argued that if the uh, the nearby system's either not functioning or turned off, like that, the reason that they made their purchase was to have a benefit in using that system. And if the system's no longer there, well, they yeah. bought something under false pretenses. And yeah, the Google Play Store and the um, iPhone Store and everything have gone, yep, okay. And they've, they've accepted refunds under that under those grounds. Oh, yeah. So so that's also made way for, for third-party apps to be introduced to um, say, well, okay, if Niantic isn't going to offer an official solution, here's a map, here's where everything's spawning, here's how long it's going to be here for go nuts and and i think it was within a few days that the lead developer or the or the management team in the uh, of the developers at Niantic said, oh, we're, we're taking these down you can't have this and it's like well you're not offering a way for us to find pokemon how are we supposed to play um but i think those tracking solutions were a little they sort of broke the spirit of the game anyway knowing exactly where something's going to be it's it's not really a pokemon game i think when it gets to that point yeah you're not supposed to know where it's going to be outside of your nearest vicinity no, <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's meant exactly. to be within your area oh there's a thing over there not oh if i travel 20ks to this part of town yeah <laughs> there'll definitely be a pikachu that's yeah. kind of yeah it's, that's against the spirit <laughs> look another topic i find particularly interesting is that intersection of, of gambling and esports and some news recent uh, news recently um, appears to have caused some controversy on a number of levels in a number of industries. So the the quote-unquote skin gambling uh, operations linked to Counter-Strike. What can you tell us about that? Mm, now, this is a very dense sort of uh, issue because I guess there, there's two fronts in regards with esports and gambling. Um, I guess the, the, the first would be very similar to gambling on uh, more conventional sports. So, you know, betting on the outcome of... Uh, Starcraft or Counter-Strike mm. matches and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the skin gambling uh, aspect comes from... I'll, I'll use Counter-Strike as an example, though there are other games kind of to work with this, but Counter-Strike's been the big one in news lately. Um, in the game Counter-Strike, uh, you can get... Uh, what would you call them? Uh, they're, they're like uh, designs for your weapons. So mm. they call them skins. So you get their colours or... Uh, sort of like prints and designs to chuck on the actual weapon models. You can either buy them through uh, the Steam marketplace from other players, or they do come in random drops uh, within Counter-Strike itself. You can also pay money to get those drops within Counter-Strike. So uh, when, you, when you get a skin, uh, skins vary in rarity. Um, there are some that are very common, and there are some that are very, that are very rare. Uh, and based on that, they now have a value for people in the Steam marketplace. Right. So that's where, yeah, some people will pay top dollar for a rare color on their gun. I, I know it sounds really strange <laughs> kind of just saying it like that. But, yeah, this is like a hundreds to thousands of US dollars industry uh, in terms of per item. Now, where skin gambling comes into it uh, is a whole bunch of third parties have set up websites where you can effectively play... It's like roulette or the pokies, pretty much, where you can link your um, Steam account, so Steam, the platform Counter-Strike's playthrough, mm. to these websites, and you can say, well, I bet this particular weapon skin on the outcome against your particular weapon skin uh, of, like, essentially a coin toss, and the winner gets all. Mm. And so while, from that website's perspective, that's just, you know, you're just betting worthless in-game items mm. like cosmetic in-game content when you transfer that back to the steam marketplace these things are worth real money so that's where this has become a huge controversy because um unlike a lot of 
regular sports betting, skin uh, skin gambling, weapon skin gambling, isn't really regulated by an age gap. Yeah. Like, properly. Uh, yeah, not regulated by an age gap or by, like, an authoritative governing body. So, yeah, there's been a lot of issue that uh, minors have been participating in in skin gambling. So underage gambling is suddenly the big the big blaring neon sign of doom <laughs> over a lot of esports now. And actually an Australian politician has weighed in on this, um, Senator Nick Xenophon, uh, who's been very, very anti uh, uh, poker machines and uh, just generally is very much for tougher regulations uh, when it comes to gambling, particularly gambling advertising and all that sort of stuff so he's uh, been very outspoken that he says uh, these kind of games like counter-strike with these features are grooming children into uh being more uh, susceptible to gambling oh that makes sense I mean, so i guess moving hmm. forward now this is something that and this is something that the it's just one of those challenges the industry deals with as as technology uh becomes a little more pervasive and and we have WAN links that become better and can support um, better gameplay. It, you know, p- more people are getting involved. It's just, I think it's just something that the industry will have to deal with. But moving forward, is there is there any movement on, on any crackdowns? I recall reading something uh, a little earlier uh, in the week which suggested that you visit some of these, because I believe the way that works, you, you visit a certain site, like a, like a betting exchange yeah. of sorts, and, and some of them will, will prompt you and, and say, look, hey, you can, you can access this, but you just need to make sure that you're not, um, you know, you're not breaking any, any laws um, in your local area, and if, yeah. if people accept that, they, they do so on their own terms. But- there, there is a bit of that. Um, I, my understanding, see, I guess I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not 100% on the legal... <laughs> Uh, the legal jargon regarding this, but part of my understanding is that the law in Australia is that uh, with regards to online betting, uh, that unless you are a registered, uh, I think, registered gambling business in Australia, Mm. you cannot let people from Australia, so within their IP within Australia, bet money through your online platform. So that's where any Australians taking part in the Counter-Strike uh, skin gambling sites, I think, is effectively illegal based on that, or at least from the business standpoint, from the, the people who own the website, them allowing anyone from Australia to use their platform is a breach of law. Yeah, exactly. And that makes so, sense. So mm, that's where it gets a bit tricky. But I think it'll mean it'll it'll um have huge repercussions on um something like... Uh, j- just microtransactions going forward. I mean, they're not saying all microtransactions in video games are gambling, but uh, the I wrote an editorial on this uh, when this sort of happened, maybe about two weeks ago, and I realised something like the game Overwatch, mm. I feel, maybe steps into a similar kind of bounds if we're going to talk about grooming for gambling. Because while there isn't a third-party... Uh, real money value system uh, surrounding uh, Overwatch items. In uh, the game Overwatch itself, you uh, the, the microtransactions consist of buying these things called loot boxes. Right. And in the loot box, you're, you're given four random items. And they could be a, a character costume or a, a snappy one-liner for your character to say... <laughs> um, it could be a little bit of currency to spend in the in-game store or things like that. So harmless, not gameplay affecting gear, but you can't actually buy the individual items with real money straight up. Like I can't see an outfit for one of the characters and go, I want that one and purchase it. I have to get it out of a loot box. And so uh, what I can do though, is I can pay either what is it? It's like $6 for two loot boxes or it can go up to like 50 something for uh, like a hundred loot boxes or so, something like that. But essentially I can pay real money for the chance to get that item. Sure. And there are items that are rarer than others. So it's sort of a weird thing of, uh, I guess, exchanging money for more opportunities to win the thing I want. We're starting to sound a bit like so, gambling yeah. again. <laughs> And that's where I thought it'll have huge repercussions on just that kind of monetary e- uh, ecosystems, the wrong word, that kind of financial system, gym, uh, revenue generating system for, mm-hmm. for video games going forward. Mm-hmm. 
As we made note of at the beginning of the show, our guest panel member for this month is David Harmon, the CEO of Zedtown. Uh, look, David, as somebody who has attended an event uh, hosted by Zedtown in the past, I certainly don't require any details whatsoever. I know how awesome a Zedtown game is, but maybe for those who are listening who perhaps have never even heard the word Zedtown dropped in conversation, uh, what is it exactly? Um, okay, well, Zedtown is... Um Australia's largest real-world zombie survival game. Um, we take large, um, large areas, about you know, three or four city blocks, big university campuses or Sydney Olympics uh, Park we used once, and we stick them full of characters, missions, uh, story items, and just hundreds and hundreds of zombies. And the objective is to try and survive for as long as you can, armed with nothing more than a Nerf blaster and whatever friends you can con into coming with you. So it's a bit like um, a sort of real live action zombie shooter game like Left the Dead or Dead Rising that plays out in your own city with you, as I said, using a Nerf blaster to keep zombies at bay. Yeah, I love it. And, and we'll, we'll chat a little more about um, the events in particular in a moment. But I'm keen to hear, uh, how did this idea come about? I mean, what was it that sort of, uh, what was the light bulb moment for you when you thought, man, I'm, I'm going to make this a thing? Uh, so I used to work at University of Sydney um, along with a lot of my friends um, doing just sort of silly jobs. I was hosting trivia competitions and another of my friends was working at the bar where the trivia competitions were. And we used to spend a lot of time wasting time just sort of um, <laughs> making elaborate plans for where we would go on campus if a zombie apocalypse sort of outbreak happened. Yeah. Shaun of the Dead had just come out and we would talk about it a lot. And we sort of basically broken the whole university down into sectors by this point and worked out where all the defensible spots were and <laughs> where you would get trapped. And we just got more and more excited about defending the campus from zombies. And at the same time, I was reading about um, games like Humans vs. Zombies and Assassin and Mafia that were play being played in colleges in America. And then there was a little bit of money available from a student arts festival called Verge. And so I, we just said, okay, well, let's just apply and do it. Let's just call it an art installation. And <laughs> the first one was for 80 people and it sold out immediately and we've just been building them since then. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. And, and look, um, as I mentioned, I've attended one in the past. I'm going to, to Dead South a little later in the year. Which, which one did you go to out of curiosity? Oh, goodness. I, I visited, it was Melbourne University late last year, I, I believe it was. Oh, wow. Um, that was our first ever Melbourne It, it was. That's right. And... Uh, I recall seeing you uh, announce it, and when you mentioned it was the first time, I looked around at, at all these people and I thought, this is, I love this. I love that it brings these people together, and people just make friends on a whim, and you just have the, uh, an absolute blast. It was it was really great, So, and it was quite successful too. So, Oh, great. I'll be interested to see what you think of the next one, because if I recall correctly, that, that Melbourne game was for about 250 people, and this next one is 1,000 people that you're going to, so it's a very... <laughs> Very different experience. Yeah, my um, I'm attending uh, this year with, with the same um, friend I attended in Melbourne last year. And yes, that's something that we're definitely keen to... The map is much bigger. We're going to have, uh, I think, a lot more strategy meetings about how we're going to play <laughs> out uh, our, our time there uh, a little later in the year. So, But I mean, uh, and speaking of the, these events and, and, and individuals that attend, what are some of the sort of a stranger or quirky or interesting strategies you've, you've seen uh, out in the field, so to speak, people employing to stay alive? Well, um, I mean, there's all kinds of strategies that are employed. There's the type of player that will just hide underneath like a transient building for six hours and then emerge <laughs> and be like, I won. And I'll yeah. be like, congratulations, you wasted your day. Yeah. Um, but there's also, I actually really like players that come more excited about the story they're going to tell. Mm -hmm. uh, so we get sometimes wonderful cosplayers and people that have sort of come as characters. There's a whole group called the Scavengers of the Scarlet Waste who do web series about post-apocalyptic um, sort of Australia, and they come all in character, which is amazing. Oh. Um, we had a woman once come in a wedding dress that she'd bought from an op shop and looked <laughs> so beautiful and amazing. This is a huge white wedding dress and a shotgun, and it was just so, there's something <laughs> like just such a great story just seeing her. And then finally, when she'd been tagged, she came back to where we make you up as a zombie, and we were like, oh, What are you going to do? Like, we don't want to. Put, you know, ruin this lovely dress. And she's like, no, I bought it for this. Uh, let's just start ripping it. And she just grabbed a big bucket of fake blood and just started splattering herself. 
and that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's uh, I suppose what you would call the spirit of the game. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, so what can uh, and you know, I mean, I'm not sure whether we'd be touching on any uh, spoilers here, or whether it's something that you you are happy to divulge. But you know, when when somebody attends a a Z Town game, we sort of describe the format. But on the day somebody arrives, um, somebody like myself, for example, first event, what do they expect when they rock up? So your first experience will be to come to what we call Zombie Hub, which is our big registration area, which is where you will uh, be given a unique um, ID set of uh, dog tags and we'll check your blasters, make sure that you're dressed appropriately, that you've got an appropriate weapon with you and we'll run you through the rules of Z-Town again, explain to you how zombies are tagged, how respawning works. There's Mm. about two pages of rules you need to know. Uh, after that, if um, the game, our game involves factions, and sometimes our games do, you'll have the opportunity to race off into the game zone where the warlord of your faction will probably be giving a speech about who your faction are, who their backstory is, and what they're trying to accomplish. And from then on, it's really up to you to make your own fun. There's, mm. We start with a very small amount of zombies, you know, maybe 10 to 12, plus a few hidden zombies, just to add some paranoia into the mix. <laughs> and then... As people get tagged and become zombies, the numbers just grow steadily and you'll go from seeing no zombies maybe in the first hour to seeing no humans in the last. And as the sun starts to set, humanity starts to die and it'll end with a few humans holed up somewhere in a besieged um, (laughs) (laughs) horror horror situation. Hundreds of zombies chant, one of us, one of us, one of us is there society finally crumbles yeah i think you've pretty much just described my my first experience at zed and, and it and it was awesome and that's why i don't want to touch on the the story was something that really pulled me in because i've seen um similar uh events hosted not quite on the scale that that zed town uh hosts uh their events but the the, the theatrics and the story and the characters um, you mentioned faction leaders and i recall uh ours when I, when my friend and i attended and he was just amazing you really felt immersed how, how do you uh, how much time do you sort of spend crafting these stories and how, how does that process work so my background i'm personally just a big old nerd and you know i love my video games love my board games love my D, mm. but my training is in theater um i went to nida and did the directing course there and that's kind of where i got my start <laughs> and so the theater component of it is something that i really love and put a lot of focus into and as also as a result, I've got a lot of friends I can draw on who are actors and improvisers and costume designers and makeup artists. And I really rely on that team to make it happen. So, yeah, we're, we're really lucky that we've got some just really great performers and I work with them on their characters. But a lot of what they do, definitely most of their dialogue, they come up with themselves often on the spot. Mm-hmm. And we sort of work off a loose Bible, which is about a 10-page document, which we all share, that has a bit of background information, some of the lingo of the world, and what the relationships are between the characters, and then they just go nuts based on that. Mm. Okay, so you, you attend a, you attend an event, it's huge, you have an amazing time, uh, somebody like myself going back in for, for a second helping. Z-Town... The events are quite large. It's very a lot of efforts put into it. What what's next? How how does Zed Town continue to grow from here? Obviously, is it is it for you in your role? Is it just making sure that things are being tightened up and and you know maybe improving things here and there or taking little bits away? What are some of the things you sort of learn after each each event? Is there a little bit of a a, a briefing session that you have with your team afterwards to say, hey, this worked really great. Not so much this stuff here. Let's pull this out and let's try this in the next game. How how do things like that move forward? Well, that's been a big learning curve for us. I mean, it's interesting because just a bit of history, we spent the first three years of of our existence only playing one game a year at Sydney University, and it's only been in the last nine months that we've broken into Melbourne, that we've broken into private venues, um, non-university venues like Sydney Olympic Park, and that our game numbers have increased from, you know, 600, 500 players a year to we've had 3,000 players or so through in the last 12 months. Yeah. And, or we will have by the end of the year. And... It's been a real learning curve for us um, working out how to scale up in that way without losing the passion, the drive, and also just sort of this, the the things that the players like. Mm. Um, so we're really trying to, and we, I, we've been mostly succeeding so far, the knock on wood, to turn this into a business. And 
um, take over basically all elements of the production of it. Um, originally, the university held our hands a lot. And that's increasingly doing, um, happening now. We have our own, you know, company. We have our own accountant. We have our own uh, lawyer. We have our own insurance. And that's all been a huge learning curve. <laughs> I think that the next step for us is actually to come up with a new game. Um, I want to keep doing Zed Towns, but I also uh, think that Zed Town, if it's going to survive, needs to be about more than one real-world video game. And we're actually... Uh, developing and prototyping a game design at the moment, which we're hoping to launch next year, um, which will let us shake things up a little bit. I've, I've just got a question there, David. From from NIDA, when you're at NIDA, is there any teachers there that are like hardcore Shakespeareans who'd be <laughs> horrified at what you're doing? Yes, his name is Richard Cottrell, and he would not understand for a moment what this is. There's a lot of people at NIDA that I haven't explained this to because they would not get it. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Cottrell. Yeah. <laughs> there are also a couple of great, it's a really good school, and there are a couple of, of teachers who absolutely do get it and are very supportive of it. But, yes, it's definitely a new theatrical pursuit, I would say. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the first thing that went through my head. I went, there's got to be some old stuffy person there that just does not get this at all. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, just some guy sitting at his desk, just like, where did I go wrong? Yeah, yeah and they're, they're all sitting there going, oh, my God, Thor is our greatest achievement so far, you know? like. And how are you, David? You're still doing your little, little zombie thing? Very good, very good. <laughs> well, San Diego Comic-Con 2016 has been and gone, and we've also been treated to some really great comic-to-film adaptations over the past few weeks. We've seen trailers for Justice League, Wonder Woman... Suicide Squad has just dropped in cinemas. Mal, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this, but it seems that DC Comics at present is really putting some big runs on the board here for audiences and fans. So the thing is, DC are copying some real heat from the reviewers in the cinema end of stuff. Like, at, at, at a shop level, we're getting way more than 50% of the people coming in saying they loved Suicide Squad, hmm. which is leaps and bounds ahead of Batman v Superman and Man of Steel. So they're, they're definitely trending the right way now. But they're still not convincing anybody that they're going to really shake things up. It's gotten to the point now that even people are questioning whether or not Wonder Woman, which looks amazing, is going to be good. Um, but the um, the big thing is that comics-wise, in the comic shop, they're knocking it out of the park. Suicide Squad is one of those rare superhero movies these days that is actually attracting new readers into the comic shop. And... Um, we're we're set, we're having trouble keeping it on the shelves, mm. um, which which is terrific because you know the the Captain America movies as good as they are they don't attract that many new Captain America readers into the shop, but Suicide Squad right now we can't keep Harley Quinn or Suicide Squad or any of that stuff on the shelf it's it's ripping out the door and here's the interesting thing now DC have just relaunched their whole universe this big DC rebirth. And part of the trick there was that they pushed the price of the comics down to uh, the old US price of two ninety nine per issue, but they increased the frequency a little bit, so so they're coming out two times a month. Now, what they what they've nailed in the very first week of this month in August, they have done put more dollars in the bank this first week of August than they did in the entire month of April. They've clearly done something. They've caught everyone's imagination. It's working well. And and right now, and for the numbers for last month, they've beaten Marvel. Now, Marvel don't do $2.99 books. Mm. They do $3.99, $4.99, $5.99 books. They've just launched Civil War Two, which is up to, like, issue three. And it's a, it's a good read, but it's slipping in its schedule. It's got weird spin-offs that people can't work out how do they tie in. And DC are just like, here's cheap books with fun stories, and they put them out, and it, it, they're, just, they're just working, you know, which is the funny thing out of all of this is a few months ago, they killed Superman and no one noticed. Yeah. So, like, mm. it's not even the spectacles that they're relying on. Like, nobody cared that Superman died. You, you compare that to what it was like 25 years ago when, when he killed him and it was in every newspaper worldwide. Mm. This time, they just killed him and nobody even blinked an eye and 
they're st- they're selling through the roof. So they're doing something right. It works for me as a comic shop owner. I tell you what, <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And do you think <clears throat> that's an interesting point? Um, I, because Suicide Squad, I I speak to different people. I have different networks, and and I'll speak to people that maybe ten to fifteen years older than myself, and they they're seasoned comic readers, and they're they're avid fans of of those characters and perhaps they took a little more of a dislike uh to the film Uh, i actually Mm. haven't seen it but i also have a chat to uh friends who maybe uh just go and see it because they might have liked the look of the you know the girl with the pigtails and the baseball bat Uh, and they said man i really enjoyed that film is it that this particular film is maybe it's maybe it's wrong to say this but could it be that this particular it's turned out this particular film has become aimed at people that aren't don't read a lot of comic books um and they just want a fun story with some with some cool characters in it something that appeals to new people that feels like a new idea what a novel concept well done hollywood Mm. you know like it's it's that's exactly what it is the the when a comic book adaptation movie attracts new readers into the comic shop it's almost always something that people don't expect comics to be like so the Crow did it, Sin City did it, 300 did it, um, Watchmen did it. And Suicide Squad, people are like, what's this crazy dirty dozen supervillain thing and who are these guys? And, you know, Harley Quinn, she's all like crazy and stuff. And even the Joker is nothing like the Joker that they've seen before. Mm. So so people are, are desperate that this came from somewhere and they want to feel like they know. And, and it's all full of stuff that hasn't leached out into the mainstream anywhere else. You know, Deadshot is a character that's been around since like the early eighties and, and outside of comic book circles, nobody knows him. The hardcore com- DC fans, they all know him. Um, if you played far enough into a Batman video game, you'd know him. Mm-hmm. But, but other than that, you know, like, and, and here's Hollywood casting Will Smith, you know, Academy Award winner Will Smith um, in this role. And they're all like, yeah, it's really caught people's attention. Mm. So, yeah, it's... It does feel to me a little bit, though, that, like, because I'm not a big... Um, I've got friends who are big comic book uh, collectors and purchasers, and I'm not. I'm one of those people who um, has a friend who says, here, read this, and passes me a copy of, the, of Watchmen rather than has my own copy. Yeah. But um, it seems to me that the that doesn't surprise me at all because the concept of Suicide Squad is such a great concept that that would drive me to to read more about it. Um, it, and it seems to me like that's the idea, you know, that's that's the success of the concept more than yeah. the success of the film. Yeah, exactly. Look, and that's ultimately the Deadpool is a really interesting character comic-wise. 13 years ago, Deadpool's comic got renamed Agent X in an effort to try and save sales because it just wasn't selling. <laughs> that to make X-Men right. confused, like... Lazy yeah, X-Men exactly people. right. Nab <laughs> all the X-Men fans, right? And then that horrible Wolverine Origins film came out mm. with that horrible Ryan Reynolds version of, of Deadpool. Oh, yeah. That was like nothing else ever. It was just an absolute abomination. They sewed his mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, they sewed his mouth shut. And he could teleport like Nightcrawler and just like all these bizarre things. And that made people interested enough to go, who is this Deadpool character? They walked into a comic shop, discovered the comics, realized they were actually very good, Mm. and we haven't been able to slow down the speed of Deadpool comics since that movie. So all it is, all you really need to do is make Hollywood tell people, hey, there's a cool character that's already in comic shops. We're going to make a really shit film about them, and that's all it takes. (laughs) People then go and discover that character. It doesn't matter. What what sort of although Catwoman didn't work, so <laughs> yeah. But then everybody thought they knew who Catwoman was from the old 1960s TV show anyway. So mm. so yeah, it was already starting behind there. I but mean, you're right that Suicide Squad a big part of the appeal of that is because I am a bit of a Batman fan, and, and it's that Harley Quinn as envisioned from the animated series back in the day is just such a great character waiting yeah. for like silver screen treatment. Mm. And Margot Robbie is like a great actress, so you've got just such a great double hit, even if the film, you know, doesn't quite get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. All you've got to do is float just high enough that 
that they get another go at fixing it. I mean, Hugh Jackman's still making Wolverine movies. <laughs> Just, got a couple yeah. of houses thanks to Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by all accounts, he got in Margot Robbie's ear before this because she showed up with her own script for a spin-off movie. So she, she's she's got she plenty. Ben Affleck's them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the the neighbors home and away crew that all just sort of show up as cameos in some Harley Quinn spin-off movie. <laughs> isn't there isn't there a great series of and I haven't read them but I know of them. There's a great series of like Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy's adventures, isn't there? That would make yeah, a yeah, great yeah. series of films. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, that culminated in them them stopping they they basically they basically gave up on on all of the weird little in jokes and said straight up that um harley and ivy are a couple but they don't they don't have the problems of monogamy <laughs> and and so it's, it's funny too because it seems to me uh, like i don't know if this is exactly sorry if i'm di- digressing it but the so many of the best um ideas seems to be when superhero uh comics instead of trying to do a straight superhero genre take a Hollywood genre, whether it's like Thelma and Louise style road trip movies or Dirty Dozen style Mm. Western epics and then apply that genre and the twist is also what makes it so wonderful. Yeah, well, one of the great things with comics, and this isn't just superhero comics, it's like across the board, so many of the best comics subvert the concept of genre Mm. and they're really difficult to pigeonhole. And it's what part of the reason why Hollywood has so much trouble adapting because they've only got a short period of time to tell a story and they need to pitch it to big investors and all of this sort of stuff. So everybody likes things pigeonholed so they can work out their demographics and everything like yeah. that. And comics, just every single time, the best comics are ones that have taken, you know, a serious concept and filled it with jokes like Deadpool or something or, or yeah, done that Thelma and Louise with people who dress up in crazy circus costumes and can control people's minds by kissing them and then put them <laughs> in a road trip, you know, like, yeah, really weird stuff like that. Or, or the, the recent Ant-Man comic series that, and that was pretty much just a, a road trip with Ant-Man and a dude dressed up as a grizzly bear. And like, you know, it was, yeah, the, just the crazy stuff. And yeah. and you do it in comics and you get away with it and like like in the current comics it turns out Batman has a bat cave on the moon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it seems it seems like a long bow to draw, but I don't know. Maybe it's <laughs> why not? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> we're moving away from the uh, the big two, if you will, uh, DC and Marvel. I want to chat about a television series that's been keeping us up at ridiculous hours of the night. Uh, Netflix's Stranger Things. Um, I loved this. I think the Duffer Brothers absolutely nailed the 80s feel. Uh, so that alone just drew me right in from the first few minutes uh, of each uh, or episode one, really. But but not only that, though, um, I, I fell in love with the characters and I connected with them instantly. Have you had a chance to watch Stranger Things yet, David? Uh, no, I haven't. My fiance watched it all in um, just about, I think she devoured it in one day and sort of blinked and I missed the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. What was wonderful about it is you what you end up binge watching it in the opening weekend, and it felt like though you were, you were already playing catch up. It felt like this show that had been around for forever, and you were just catching up. It, it captured the eighties so well. It was everything that I looked for on the back of a VHS tape at the video store as a kid. <laughs> yeah, you know, and ah oh, man, I was just so yeah, I was there all the whole way. What was amazing was watching like my my Twitter feed and Facebook feed are just full of comic book artists and stuff, and just while I'm watching it, I'm I'm getting these really really mild spoilers because every famous artist out there in the world couldn't help but do fan art based on the mm. series. They were just throwing them up in their feed constantly. And that's always a good sign, isn't it? Like that's a sign yeah. that you really nailed it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm pretty sure the Duffer Brothers have just filled their walls now with all these amazing little sketches of of the main characters, and uh, it was yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. What? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> Netflix seems to be primed. In they seem to be taking the bull by the horns. Like they're not afraid to greenlit um, the production of some really great shows. I think I think I recall reading somewhere that Stranger Things was turned down by I don't know a dozen. Networks or something? I read, or I read between 15 and 20 was the crazy. headline I read. Yeah. Um, 
And and it, it's not just... Um, I mean, Stranger Things, to me, I think, believe is just one example of that. I mean, these shows are giving birth to some wildly lovable characters and, and, and really um, electric stories that you just, can, as I said earlier, really connect with. Does it seem to you like, uh, as viewers, we're really being exposed to, to new types of heroes that perhaps we aren't expecting? For example, they're not what we'd expect from a Marvel or DC comic book? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the funny thing is that, that Stranger Things has come out just as we're, we've just gotten the first trade paperback of Paper Girls from Image, which is written by the same guy that wrote, writes Saga, Brian K. Vaughan. He's oh. a, he, also, he also created Runaways for Marvel. He did Why the um, Last Man too, didn't he? He did Why yeah. the Last Man. Oh, he man, did Ex Machina. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's got this series called Paper Girls, which is based five years after the events of Stranger Things. They, they're not related. I just happened to look up all of the details to work out how closely related these comics were. Mm. So Stranger Things is in 1983 in Illinois and uh, Paper Girls is in 1988 in Ohio. It's like like a couple of hundred miles away. Five years later, it could work perfectly as a sequel. Mm. Mm. And it's about a group of 12-year-old girls who are are like this little gang of the delivery, the the paper newspaper delivery crew in this town. They've they've sort of co- cornered out all of the boys and made it this this whole thing that the girls do the paper deliveries in this town. And it's the morning after Halloween, so it's before the sun comes up after Halloween. They're delivering newspapers, and then they've got these walkie talkies, and and one of their walkie talkies goes missing, and they follow someone into this house, and they discover this machine, and then there's all sorts of crazy sci-fi adventures and it like it's come out at the same time stranger things has come out and i'm sitting there looking at it going these things like yeah they're riding around on bmx's <laughs> and they've got walkie talkies and there's crazy sci-fi adventures and i was like this that's is the yeah. formula yeah that's yeah right it's, it's just dying to happen you yeah know? um i know i haven't read that i'll have to pick it up but, but they're definitely not uh they weren't produced in um they're definitely not officially related in any way, no, shape, or form. No, no, mm. no. It's just one of those great synergies of ideas going on at the moment. Um, you know, Netflix, is, Netflix has just released The Get Down, which is like it starts in the 1970s. But again, it's it, it's about the start of that 1980s hip-hop scene. So yes. the Baz 80s, Luhrmann as well. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann. So, and ah. he's got a real, a real um, comic book superhero feel to the way that one of the main characters, um, Shaolin Fantastic, is is presented as this this crazy trainee superhero sort of character, but he, what he's actually doing is training to be a DJ under Grandmaster Flash, <laughs> and, and it's in a very very Baz Luhrmann over the top stylized way, and and yeah, again, coming back to the comic book link because that's where my whole world rotates apparently, <laughs> is. Um, the comic uh, Hip Hop Family Tree by Ed Piscor, published by Fantagraphics, um, is basically a, is a chronological history of the development of hip hop. And that comic, there are photos going around of that comic was on the set. They were using that as guide to style and feel for scenes and, and that basically. So to get that comic booky but hip hop feel to all of the scenes in a very Baz Luhrmann way, you know. So, um, again, it's that comics and Netflix, man. They, they, it goes beyond the Marvel deal, you know. There's, mm. they just, they're existing at the same time right now. It's, yeah, very, very cool. Mm. We're, 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 we'll happily take sponsorship from Netflix for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, just to finish off, Mel, I'd want to touch on a couple of those trailers that dropped out of San oh. Diego Comic-Con. I don't know, David, whether you sort of were online, like I assume the rest of us were, just sort of waiting for these to hit. And, and uh, did you have any thoughts on, say, Justice League, Wonder Woman, or, or any of the others that you uh, you caught? I haven't seen any of them. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. <laughs> I've, um, no, I've been, I've been stuck in Z-Town mode recently. <laughs> I've played all zombies. of my favourite things. <laughs> sure. I, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said, Mal, earlier. Wonder Woman looks fantastic. Um, it, it looks, does. I'm really looking forward to it. Justice League, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, I think, I think it's way too early for us to get anything out of Justice League. Yeah. But, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta admit that I, my faith in Zack Snyder has, has dropped markedly. So, 
you know. I'm, I'm such so not a fan of that man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, um, yeah, there's, there is so many times he's taken really great stories, I think, and just failed to deliver on what they're about. And I, I was one of those people that really disliked um, particularly Watchmen. And, um, and then I was also, I'm a big Brian Singer fan. And so this sort of interplay between them and uh, X-Men is also something that's just uh, really got my goat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think he makes good superhero movies. I don't know. I don't think so, he gets so it. As, as, as the zombie man on the panel, what, what, did, what did you think? Well, I'm guessing I've got an idea where you're going to go. What did you think of his remake of Romero? Um, did, did you ever see that? No, I didn't oh, see it because I really don't like him anymore. I, <laughs> I just find Zack Snyder, I think that he does, he's a, he frames comic strips um, beautifully in a camera and he can work with the production designer to absolutely deliver a comic, you know, a scene from a comic. Yeah. But I don't think he can tell stories well. Mm. And I think, there's I think more. He's, I think he's got um, no sense of fun or soul no. in his characters. Yeah, he visually he's amazing. I, I yeah. Think, yeah, yeah. But I also but. just think I don't think. Yeah, I think that he also has no imagination. It's not even just about fun; it's about imagination. Like, yeah. I I found that the a lot of people were really loved. I know the Watchmen soundtrack, but I found the Watchmen soundtrack so ridiculously derivative that you know you can't yeah. playing Jimi Hendrix all along the Watchtower in Vietnam is just you know, riffing on Forrest Gump, playing um, What a Wonderful World is just Good Morning Vietnam. Like, he was just taking songs that great films had used to mean something and then meaning to represent the same idea. And that really bugged me. Almost becomes pastiche rather than anything else, yeah. Totally. And then you got someone like... um, uh, when they Scott Pilgrim, uh, Edgar Wright did stop, Scott, Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that is just, you know, reinvention, 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 and yeah. completely fizzing with the energy of the comics, but in in a way that is much more fun than just a, oh, they really managed to recreate that one page that we yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very curious to know what Edgar Wright's Ant-Man would have looked like. Yeah, totally. I always, I think that um, Edgar Wright is someone who I haven't, still haven't seen it, but I think that from what I know of Suicide Squad, Edgar Wright would have been a great pick there as well. He's just, for me, he and Brian Singer are the two um, comic book directors that I think really get the energy of when I read comics um, into a film. Well, we're now well and truly into the second half of the 2016 calendar, and we're once again taking a look forward in anticipation uh, to some really great social and networking events being hosted right across the country. And now typically this is the part of the show where I would say something along the lines of, hey, let's chat to our friend Kyle Evans from CanGeek, but we're not doing that today. Well, well, we will be chatting, uh, Kyle, but what we won't be doing is referring to you as the host of CanGeek because that's now changed, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, we're now going by Geek Events Australia. Fantastic. And what's the story there? Because I think you might have mentioned it uh, briefly in our last episode, but um, let, let's hear it in a little more detail. Sure. So um, I started CanGeek a while ago, back in 2007, and... Fairly recently, at the start of this year, I bumped into someone on the internet who was also doing something similar on Facebook. Um, her name's Hannah. She was also running a, a convention called BerserkerCon, which is like a gaming and anime con. And so she would, had run something quite similar to CanGeek. And so we looked at what we were each doing and we're like, well, why don't we combine forces? You know, we'll keep your Facebook group going, we'll keep mm. the website going, mm. but we'll have the same data on both spots. So it's been really positive. So what we've done is we've we've changed the branding, um, we've changed the uh, the name of CanGeek. So CanGeek.com will still take you to the website. Yes. But you can also go to GeekEventsAustralia.com, goes to the same place. If you're following us on Facebook, we really want you to follow us on Geek Events Australia. That's the only practical change for people already following us on Facebook. <laughs> so if you just type in Geek Event Australia on Facebook, it'll come up. If you Google us, Geek Events Australia, first thing that comes up. But it's been a really good thing because we keep finding more events and more people get in contact with us. So mm. I think where before, I think CanGeek had about 120 events uh, on it. We're now up to over 200 events on geek events australia and it's yeah it's it's growing it's it's you know the coverage has gotten so much better for having more than mm. one eye on on the events 
That's fantastic. But what hasn't changed there, obviously, is the fact that uh, we can still rely on uh, Can Geek or, or Geek Events Australia now uh, to give us informed of upcoming geeky events. Uh, in fact, if anything, I'd, I'd say you're more equipped to do so than ever. Um, exactly. And we still we still pay good, uh, you know, we, we still take care of our friends in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the name change, we still cover New Zealand. We've still got 18 events on there. It's just the thing that, you know, Geek Events Australia does what's on the book, but also New Zealand. We, we <laughs> exactly. will never forget about them. Exactly. They've uh, got so great events. Exactly. They certainly do. Uh, and speaking of events, tell us what's happening in the coming weeks. I think we're going to be treated to a couple of anime-themed events. Yeah. So, happening right now is is Smash over in Sydney, which is the Sydney Manga and Anime Festival. So, obviously, if you're listening to this now, too late to go. But if you're an anime <laughs> fan... In uh, Melbourne, you've actually got an interesting conundrum. In fact, if you're involved with anime at all, you might have an interesting conundrum because we, for the next three weeks, we have back-to-back anime events happening every weekend. Mm. So Smash is happening in Sydney right now. Next weekend in Melbourne, there's uh, Animaga, and followed the weekend after that, you know, first weekend of September, is the Madman Anime Festival. So for those of you who are super familiar, Animaga's been running for about a few years now. It uh, took up the reins after Manifest disappeared, which used to be the biggest anime festival in Melbourne. So Manifest has been building its brand for a couple of years, and Madman, obviously being the biggest distributor of anime and all kinds of other interesting stuff to Australia, has decided to run its own anime con. So they're they're really working with their, you know, they're, they're a newcomer, but Madman is a very big company, very well known, uh, and they're bringing their brand and kind of going head-to-head with the other big anime cons. So it's going to be interesting to see if if next year, if they split their dates apart a little bit more or if if one of them might even drop out in a couple of years from now. Because it's, you know, it's not uncommon for an event to run for a year or two and then just disappear. It happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope it's not the case because Animaga, I, from what I've heard, has done a really good job building themselves up. But we will see. Exactly. Now, we, we touched on this, uh, I think it may have been two or even three episodes ago, uh, the Madman Convention. It's really close now it seemed like so long ago when we were chatting about it and i guess in a way it was but uh we sort of had a little discussion around um some of the things that we can expect at this particular con as you mentioned it's it's being hosted in a time where similar events are either side of it is there something or is there anything that that madman itself has revealed that that might sort of make it stand out a little more than the others well the Madman Festival is at the convention center, so very big uh, venue. They've mm. got a whole bunch of guests here. Pretty much, I won't go through the guests because they're mostly, you know, voice actors and directors and things like that. So sure. if I gave you their names, you probably only know them <laughs> if you were mm. like super into that these animes. But you know, lots of international guests. Pretty much, what I'm guessing is imagine Armageddon or Supernova mm. if they, you know, had that money and that size, but then focused entirely on anime. That's kind of what I'm expecting here. And and honestly, like one of the things that can Geek is really good for if you're an event organizer is uh, keeping track of other events and making sure you don't have these kind of uh, date clashes. So, you know, this is, we're a good resource for fans as well as our organizers to make sure you, you spread things out a little bit more. Exactly. It truly is the, the Swiss Army knife for anybody who wants anything to do with uh, geeky events across Oz or New Zealand. You know, there is something that caught my eye, actually, mm. um, and that's the Evolve Pop Culture Evolve Pop Culture Expo happening over in WA. Sure. And, you know, I, I did the numbers recently to figure out, you know, what the distribution of events is. And I always thought we didn't have too many events over in Western Australia. But mm. we've got 16 events listed, which is pretty good, um, more than South Australia even. But Evolve Pop Culture stood out to me because it's a really big event. Um, it is a brand new pop culture expo, but they've got a whole bunch of cosplay get special guests. They're trying to really focus on cosplay. I think it might be biased because their website is really well designed. And <laughs> since I literally look at every event website, you know, across the country, when I see a really good website, it's very appealing to me. Sure. But it looks like they put together like a really professional package. Um, you know, this is like supernova, you know, if you know your supernova um, level of quality, like I'm imagining something like this, maybe even a little bit better. It's, a, you know, it's a very attractive website. Um, but if you like cosplay, I think Evolve is going to be a very good event for it because there's lots of um, really good speakers coming out and special guests coming out. Sounds great. And if I can add one other thing as well, um, we don't normally promote events extra or like, you know, give heads up before they're, you know, just about to happen. But sure. one that we're giving a bit of a signal boost to. So in doing the numbers uh, of, you know, what states are represented, I found that we don't have any events in the Northern Territory. Ah. And so that seemed a little sad to me because, mm. I mean, okay, sure, maybe it's less of, you know, less representation or you know, it's just hard to get events going on there, whatever. 
But I did a big googling around, and there is a video games and anime convention that's trying to get off the ground. They right. were going to run in 2016. They're postponed to 2017. But if you go onto Facebook and type in G-Con, so G-E-E-C-O-N, you will find um, the Facebook group for G-Con, which is Danimat Darwin's Anime and Video Games Convention. They're currently doing a market research survey to just plan their next event. So, you know, if you're in the Northern Territory, check it out. If you're in the Northern Territory and know events, you know, go to geekeventsaustralia.com, hit contact. Let us know about more things because we want to make sure we're, we're covering the events that are happening across Australia, not just the events that we're aware of because we're based out of Victoria and New South Wales. Well, we've reached the end of episode five. It's been a great ride, and I think we've covered some pretty exciting topics. I wish we could, could touch on them more. Um, look, as usual, I'd like to thank everybody for joining me, and an extra special thank you to David Harmon. David, on behalf of the panel, I really appreciate uh, you've taken the time to hang out with, uh, with us. I hope you've Thanks. enjoyed your time yeah. on the show. It's been really fun chat. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful. And for reference, where can we find you online? And of course, uh, tell us a little more about how we can attend a Z-Town game. Uh, okay, so we have very we are very silly because Z-Town is something that is very hard to spell correctly. It's Z-E-D-T-O-W-N.com, which makes a lot more sense to Australians than Americans. <laughs> and you can find Z-Town there. And just so you know, we have more tickets coming up for our next game on... We're releasing them on the 24th of this month. The game is on the 17th of September. Mm. And hopefully if you like us on Facebook, you'll hear about our next game as we try to announce a game once every few months or so. Uh, also, I have my own podcast, which is Dragon Friends, where me and some of my friends who are much funnier than I am play Dungeons & Dragons for the first time. And you can find them on iTunes by searching for Dragon Friends. Perfect. And if you want to hear more of the Defrag Podcast, simply head to soundcloud.com forward slash the Defrag Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, and there you'll find more information about all of our panel members and the amazing work they do. Look, the Defrag Podcast will return in a month's time. Until then, take care and happy listening. Mwah!